Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning to those online as well. We're glad you're with us. Um, I need to do two kind of pieces of housekeeping really quickly. Um, Marion, um, that was a safety. <laughs> Texas should have won that game. It was a safety. And everybody said amen. Um, secondly, um, coming up the start of October, October 2nd, we're going to have our Reach Sunday. Um, back in 2016, we launched our new 2030 vision, talking about who we wanted to be as a church. And a part of that, there were three different phases that we wanted to give to. One was the renovation of this space um, and, and updating the technology um, in here. And so we did that, and we have paid for that in full. Um, then we had our children's ministry spaces updated. We finished that just in time to launch it with COVID, um, which, you know, perfect timing. But um, we did get that done. That was paid in full through Reach. And then the last part of that was we wanted to be able to set aside $300,000 so that we had money to engage our neighbors. And as opportunities came up, we didn't have to go, hey, we need some money for this. We had money set aside specifically for that purpose. And it's allowed us to do things like reach um, basketball. It's allowed us to do Embrace Grace. Um, it's allowed us to hire a college ministry and really start that and kick that off. And so up to this date, we have given 217000 towards that. Um, and so our goal coming up on October 2nd is $83,000 to hit that $300,000 mark. Now, I want to also talk about one other aspect that we want to kind of tag on to this as a part of this vision. Um, one of the things that I deal with and, and have heard so much of in the recent um, several years is how many people who are in ministry have been leaving ministry. Um, and I, I, have, I, I can tell you numerous numbers of my friends that have been preachers, youth ministers, um, who have walked away from ministry because of how difficult it is. And, and I have a deep, deep passion to see that be able to continue, that, that we would be able to support ministers, that they would be able to preach the good news and be able to stand in our, our pulpits and in front of our kids and with our kids for years and years to come. And so one of the things I want us to do is begin in a much greater level supporting interns, whether that is for summers or it is for a year-round, to be able to bring people in to help them get experience in ministry and prepare them. Because I'll just tell you, going through school and even through seminary, you do not get a lot of the ministry stuff. You get some of the book stuff. You do not get the, the ministry side of it. And I really, really believe that if we want to see the church continue to, to flourish, not just here, but throughout the world, we need to do a better job of supporting young ministers and training them and bringing them up. And so the other aspect, and this plays so much into our 2030 vision of engaging our neighbors, not just engaging them here, but being able to send people out to engage their neighbors, is we want you as a church to invest in that. Not only helping to fund salaries through that for interns, 
but also things like housing them and feeding them as they are here and helping them live and be a part of our church. And so that's one of those things I'm asking you, our shepherds were asking you to buy into as a part of that 2030 vision. Um, because that is something for me that is near and dear to my heart. Because I have seen so many people leave the ministries. And so um, I don't know what that actual number needs to be yet. We're still kind of trying to figure that out. But we do know we want to be able to support youth ministry interns and children's ministry interns. I would love to see us with a preaching ministry intern. Um, and whether that, like I said, is a summer or is a recent graduate who is looking for something for a year to kind of get their feet wet. And, and so that's going to come up, and I'll give you more, but I kind of wanted to just throw that seed out there and kind of plant that um, for you to kind of start thinking about. Um, and I really do hope that you can buy into that vision um, for our interns going into the future. So there's a story about a rabbi um, in ancient Jerusalem named Rabbi Akiva. And, and I know I've used this story before. I think Kyle might have used this story before, but I, I really want to get to the, the end of the story and the question that is asked because I think it's so important as we begin this new series from First Peter. But Rabbi Akiva is walking home one evening. And this evening is much foggier than it normally is, and it's very difficult to see. And when he arrives at the fork in the road where he usually turns to go home, he misses it because of the fog. And he continues to wander further and further from home. Until finally he is greeted by a loud, booming voice as he approaches a fortress. And the voice says in the darkness, Who are you? Why are you here? And Rabbi Akiva stops dead in his tracks. And he said, who told you to ask that question? How much do they pay you? And of course, the guard from the tower is stunned by his response. And he says, why do you ask? And Rabbi Akiva, continuing to prod, says, how much? You are a guard. I am sure they pay you for this. How much money do they give you to ask that question? He says, two shekels. And Rabbi Akiva says, I will pay you double if you will follow me back to my house and ask me those two questions every single morning. Who are you? And why are you here? Peter is writing this letter to a group that he is going to call exiles. People who are longing for home. But the thing he wants them to grasp and understand more than anything else as he writes this letter is who they are and why they are here. Because that question those two questions shape and form our identity like nothing else possibly could. Who are you? And why are you here? So Peter begins this letter in chapter 1. He says this, Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's just saying, it's me, I'm writing this letter, or someone is writing this letter on my behalf. Peter is, of course, an apostle who was called by Jesus to follow him. And he is the one who stood before Jesus as Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, you got that right, Peter. And on that confession, upon that confession, I'm going to build my church. And so here's Peter. He says, I'm an apostle. Going on, he says, I'm writing to God's elect. God's chosen, the, the one God has picked out, his people. How, how do you determine? It's the ones who bear his image, which would be his creation. It just so happens that so many in his creation don't understand and don't know that they do bear his image. That that was given to them, that it is deep, deep within their DNA, that they bear the image of of God to God's elect exiles and an exile is simply someone who has been forced out of their home and it's not necessarily meaning they were just now forced out of their home and living as exile this has been going on throughout Israel's history this has been defining them as a people to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus Galatia Cappadocia Asia and Bithynia and, and this basically is modern day Turkey okay to have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And so that's Peter's kind of intro into this. I'm Peter, an apostle, and I'm writing to a group of people who has been chosen by God, but they are exiles. They are people without a home. There are people who are searching for something. They're looking for identity. In other words, you're an exile and you don't belong here. You don't belong here. Which I'm sure sends their mind to this, wait, 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 wait. My house is right down the road. This is where I live. This is my home. This is where I belong. I started wondering as I was kind of working through this in my head. Do you really long for a different and better place? Or do you merely long for a cleaned up, more sanitized version of this place? Because there are so many times that this looks pretty appealing. Because for the most part, if you are sitting in this auditorium, if you live in this country, you live a pretty comfortable life. And yeah, there might be questions on where, where are we going to get the money to pay the bills or, or what are we going to do about the debt? There might be those questions. But when you look at the way the rest of the world lives, sometimes I wonder if I'm really longing for something better, a different place, or for this one to just kind of be clean up, cleaned up and sanitized. 
right? Because this, I, I believe this country, I believe is the greatest Babylon in the history of the world. But it is still Babylon. It is not the kingdom of God. And what Peter wants them to understand as he is writing this letter is that you are exiles. It's not that you don't belong and you don't have a house here, but it's that this is not your home. This is not your final resting place. This is not your dwelling place. That your final dwelling, what's going to set it apart from everything else is the presence of God will saturate every aspect and it's not so much concerned about location. I think we, we think physical location so many times. But it's not just physical location. It's where the presence of God saturates this place. And the Spirit of God indwells His people. Think, think about Jesus' prayer. It's not that I want to get out of this place. It's rather, God, I want Your Spirit to come into this world to change this place. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That this transformation would take place. And so Peter is writing this group that he calls God's elect, God's chosen, right, who are exiles. So why are they exiles? They are a socially marginalized people who are enduring persecution for their faith. They are socially marginalized people who are going through persecution because of their faith. And, and I think just honestly for us in our world, it's really difficult. Like the socially marginalized, I think we're seeing, see more and more and more in our world today. But the persecution, really being hurt, imprisoned, killed because of your faith, is what they are dealing with. But I think it's something that we can relate to. I think it's something that we can kind of grasp hold of. Because we are seeing more and more attacks on our faith in this world. And I think it's why it's so important that we go through this, this book of 1 Peter. Because what Peter is trying to do is he's trying to talk to these people who are really struggling with, hey, wait, 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 i got some really big questions here. That we're supposed to be God's elect, His chosen people. And yet things aren't going the way we thought they would go. I didn't understand when I started following Jesus that I would be persecuted. I, I didn't understand that I would be marginalized. I would be pushed out. I didn't understand that was going to happen. Why, why is this happening? God, if you are God, why am I going through difficult times? God, if you are God, why is this road so difficult? God, if you are God and you hear me and you care and you're all-powerful and you're compassionate... Why has this gotten so difficult? And I think Peter wants them to know, because he wants them to grasp and wrestle with their identity. Because if you don't have a firm grasp on your identity before you enter into those difficult times, you will struggle to find it once you're there. See, why, why is it so important? Because when trouble comes, our identity is the first thing we question. When trouble arrives in your world, the very first thing you're going to do is start to question your identity. And I don't know if we really do it consciously necessarily all the time, 
But subconsciously, there's those thoughts. God, where, where are you in this? If life has gotten so difficult, why aren't you showing up? And we get stuck in compromising situations. We start to ask really difficult questions. See, for, for me, I was kind of born into a pew. Like, for, I mean, back then, we didn't really have, hey, you need to wait to bring your child to church. It was like, hey, you had your baby, bring your child to church. And, and so, like, I was born in a pew. My whole life, I, w- I was there. And I remember that was something that was so much a part of me. And then there was one day in, at recess, and I, I think I've told you this story before, but just, if, if you haven't heard, just bear with me. Um, I was in fifth grade. I was on the playground at Kimberlin Academy Elementary School in Garland, Texas. And there was a whole group of kids around me, and one of my friends named Arthur. And Arthur had a lisp, and he was picked on a lot. And I was that kid who was always just by Arthur's side. And, and this one day, everything, everyone was making fun of Arthur. And I, that's when I decided I was going to be the big guy. And I was going to stand up for Arthur. I said, hey guys, y'all, y'all can't talk about him like that. Like, which, that, that's pretty big for a fifth grader, right? Like, fifth grade boys usually don't step out like that and try to take on a group of people, especially if you're your friends. But I did. But then things turned. Things turned and people started making fun of me. Because they had been calling Garth, Arthur a girl. And they said, no, you, I think you're a little girl. I think you're in love with Arthur. Which, you know, for a fifth grader, that's a pretty big deal too. And I turned to Arthur and I said, Arthur, I think they're right. You're a little girl. That's not funny. It was, it was bad. And, and here's why I remember that so much. Because in that moment, when I was standing up for Arthur, like his shoulders were back, he was good because I was there and I was his friend. But the moment I said that, his shoulders dropped and his head went down and he walked away crying. And the next day I went back and I I felt terrible. So I went back to Arthur the next day and said, I'm so sorry, I'll never do that again. And he said, it's too late. And the reason I tell you that story, even if it's telling you the story again, is because in that moment when things got really difficult, my identity is what I started to question. When times are really difficult, am I going to be the person who has integrity and character and stands up for what's right? Am I going to be the person who stands up for the least of these? Am I going to be the person who takes on some some persecution and and words that maybe I don't have to because of a friend? See, sometimes I wonder if we sell out not to the highest bidder, but to the most appealing bidder. I wonder at times if we don't sell out to the highest bidder, but to comfort or to pride having things the way we want them to be. And it's always stuck with me. It always stuck with me because I started to question who I was in an instant. And it wasn't this long cognitive process. It was like that. I decided I was going to be someone else. 
See, when we lose sight of the identity that we've been given vertically, we start to search for it everywhere horizontally. We start to look for everyone and everything to tell us who we are. To tell us what matters and who's important to us. And Paul wants them to anchor their identity in one thing. To to anchor their identity because they need to grasp who they are and why they are here. They need to grasp what's important. But it's not because of what they... Their identity is not shaped by what they have done. He wants them to understand their identity is shaped by something much bigger. So he says this in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Your identity is not shaped by you and what you've done. It's not shaped by how good you are. It's shaped by Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection. He has given you this identity. And this identity can never spoil, it can never fade, it can never go away. This is who you are. It's what you belong to. It's a part of you. Hold on to it. Let let that shape the way that you see yourself in this world. Let that shape the question, who are you? Why are you here? Who are you? I am the one that God loves unconditionally and He gave His Son for me. I'm I'm the one that Jesus Christ went to the cross for and that God raised Him from the dead and gave Him life and He has given me this birth into this new living hope and I find my identity in Christ and Christ alone. That is who you are. And the beauty of it, it was given to you. I love that phrase. He has given you a new birth, a new life in Christ Jesus. And so he goes on, verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you have not seen Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And in verse 9, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's, it's this idea that it's present here and now. That, that what Jesus has done for you has shaped you and formed you and given you something that you were incapable of receiving on your own and capable of doing, of earning. But what's really interesting is you read it it almost sounds like he thinks grief is a gift. In my job, I've been around a lot of people. 
who are going through grief. And I cannot tell you a time when I've been around someone going through grief where they felt this is so joyful that I'm experiencing this. That it's joyful that I'm going through really difficult times. But here's what I do know. Is the grief and the hardship that you will experience in life is unavoidable, but it's necessary. It's necessary because there is no way to escape it. Because here, here's the thing. You don't get to experience joy in life without experiencing suffering. You, you don't get to choose which emotions you want to experience and which emotions you want to let in. You either get all of them or you block them all out. There is no happiness without sadness. There is no joy without grief. It is unavoidable. You are going to go through difficult times. Did, did God cause it? No. It's life. It's part of what happens in our condition here and now in a world that is decaying and passing away. That's part of life. But the beauty is that identity that you have been given through Christ is given because He went through it too. Right? That is the good news of the gospel, that God became man and He came into our world and He went through our mess and paid the price that we put upon Him. He paid that price for us. But I think what Peter understands what Peter knows is that this grief that you're experiencing now is going to give you greater joy on the other side as God brings you through it. Because He's going to grow you in ways during that time that you will not grow any other time. And there's never going to be a moment where you look back in your life and in your grief and you say, oh, I am so glad I went through that. I promise you. There will never be a time that we say, oh, I'm so glad they, they were gone so that I could go through that. That's not Peter. What, what Peter wants you to grasp. What, what Peter wants you to understand is that grief and the hard times that you're going through right now that you don't understand and you don't see that God is there. That God is present. God is working in you. He's walking with you. He is there in this time with you. And you're going to grow through this time in a way that you never would without it. And what you're going to see in this time is the presence of God in your life and in your world like you would never see if everything was just good and perfect all the time. Because it's in those times when we really start to search for our identity that we start to seek and, and try to figure out who we are. And who God is and where God is in this mess. But I think we see God the most clearly. He says it's like this refining fire that burns off everything around us that doesn't matter. And it gives clarity 
to the one or two things that really do matter. It, it reminds us in a way that opens our eyes to the beauty of Christ. See, Peter wouldn't say, hey, grief is great. Look forward to it and experience it with joy. He, he says, in those times when you go through grief because it's unavoidable, hold on to Christ who is there with you. And He will bring you through those difficult times. And on the other side, you will see Him and experience Him in a way that you never possibly could before. And that your closeness with Him your ability to see Him in those difficult times will continue to grow. As Christ becomes more and more the center of everything in your life. Who are you? And why are you here? Who are you? And why are you here? Peter would want you, just like these Christians, exiles, longing for home, to understand who you are in Christ, that you have been reborn into a living hope, not a world that's just a little bit better than this one. Because when trouble comes, your identity is the first thing you will begin to question. So over the next several weeks, we're going to work through 1 Peter. And we're going to have this beautiful example of how Peter would say, here's how you walk through really difficult times when it seems like you live in a world where you don't belong. Father, we thank you for this time today. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your grace, love, and mercy. And Father, I pray that your spirit, through this time and this study over the next several weeks, um, Father, that you will grow us as followers, as disciples. And Father, help us to see the beauty of Jesus more clearly. Father, we thank you for the grief that we have experienced not because the grief was so good, but because in it, Father, we found that you were so good and you were so faithful. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you. We give you all glory and honor. Together we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if we could help you with anything this morning, our shepherds, their spouses are going to be in the back of the auditorium. If we could do anything as you follow Jesus to help you, if you've never given your life to Christ and been born into that new hope, we would love to talk with you about that, help you to do that, be baptized into Christ. Um, if we could just simply put our arm around you and pray with you through a difficult time, we'd love to do that as well. Whatever you need, go to the back while we stand and sing.